and welcome. I'm Steve Martorano, and this is the Behavioral Corner. You're invited to hang with us as we discuss the ways we live today, the choices we make, the things we do, and how they affect our health and well-being. So you're on the corner, the Behavioral Corner. Please hang around a while. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to the uh, Behavioral Corner. Uh, Steve Martorano, host and guide here on the corner. What we do uh, is we talk about, well, it's a podcast about everything. That's what the Behavioral Corner is about. It's about behavioral health, and that is everything. It's all the stuff we do, the decisions we make, the situations we find ourselves in, how we react to them, and how that affects us emotionally, physically, and uh, psychologically. Uh, We do all that thing. And we're really lucky here on the corner because we keep running into fabulous people who have uh, terrific stories and life experiences to share with us. And then we share them with you as soon as you come out of the bodega across the street uh, and uh, hang with us on the Behavioral Corner. It's all uh, made possible by our great, great partners, Retreat Behavioral Health. Uh, So here's the story today. And unfortunately, you know, at the end of the day, all of these stories are worth listening to, even when they are not particularly happy stories. We've had the occasion to talk to people in horrible circumstances with substance abuse and all kinds of uh, difficulties, mental issue wise. But at the end of the day, they're here to tell you that they survived that. And we certainly have a survivor today. Uh, Aaron Riley has had a uh, fascinating career in uh, entertainment. She has uh, been an event producer. She's a media executive. She had a rock and roll school, community theater, and uh, years in broadcasting, which is where friends of ours all intersected. And that's how I come to know Erin. A lifetime of uh, self-sufficiency, really. This is a woman who could take care of herself. So she's here today to uh, talk about what wound up being the worst experience of her life, I'm guessing, in a toxic relationship of the first order. And she joins us to talk about that because she hopes it will be a cautionary tale. So, Erin, thanks for joining us on The Corner. Did I get most of that right? You certainly did. Thank you so much, Steve, and thank you for having me. It's uh, our pleasure. So, you know, we don't have to go into a real deep dive on your background. I think I summed it up pretty accurately. This is this marriage you were in that ended so horribly. How did it begin? How did you meet this fellow? Well, I was about 40 years old. This is a second marriage for me. And, uh, and I met this gentleman online on Match.com in, uh, I guess that was 1999. So that's 20, 22, 23 years ago, uh, in the very early days of Match.com. So online. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know what? There used to be a huge stigma attached to that. Who would do that? I would always be of the mind, are you kidding me? If the idea is to meet people, why don't you go where the people are? And they're all online. So there's nothing unusual about that. Did you feel funny meeting somebody under those circumstances? It was not actually my idea to go online to meet somebody. I actually did this to help out my assistant. So I was working with a young woman who had just broken up with her boyfriend. And she was thinking, oh, I'm never going to meet anybody. And I said, why don't we try that new online thing together? And I did it as support for her. And I was the one that ended up meeting someone. She actually met somebody in real life. So from the contact online to, you know, the meetup and then a relationship, how would you characterize that period of time before you got married, the courtship? What was the courtship like? Well, our first date, I will be really honest with you, Steve. I felt something a little off on the first date. I felt as though there were there was some secretiveness or something that didn't really add up. And that's an important thing to take note of because you've got to trust your gut when it comes to making emotional decisions for yourself because your brain will tell you a bunch of lies. Uh, so that said, uh, the first several dates were 
just as romantic as you could possibly imagine. Flowers, Tiffany bracelets, trip to Hawaii, you know, just all the most romantic things. And I felt like it was hanging on my every word, just like, oh, I'm just drunk on you. You're so interesting. Much later, I find that is uh, what they call mirroring. And they're studying you. You know, this gentleman was studying me to try and match up with all of my likes and dislikes so that I would think that I had met the love of my life. But it was very carefully calculated. Yeah, we're, we're going to find out how you discovered that, because that's a that is not an uncommon story. Mm-hmm. The, the people that are disturbed in a relationship sense are calculating and they're operating on a different wavelength. But somebody listening to this, uh, maybe a, another young woman would go, well, you know, your gut was telling you from the jump, watch out. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're so smart, how come you were overwhelmed by the romantic stuff? You, do you look back at that and go, what a dope I am? Um, yeah, a little bit. But, you know, everybody comes into a relationship with their own set of baggage, especially at age 40, like I was, you know, in all my past experiences from childhood and my first marriage. And uh, your brain is super powerful. Your brain can convince yourself of anything that you actually want it to. So you will sort of override your own gut reactions to say, well, this person is handsome or generous or reliable or has a good job or a nice car or is so attentive or whatever. And that's your brain making a list of things to convince your like to sort of rationalize away what you're actually. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great example of confirmation bias. No one goes into a relationship looking for it not to work. So you begin looking for evidence that it is working, even if the evidence is sketchy or non-existent. And this is important for people to know that because otherwise it sounds like that couldn't happen to me. It could happen to anyone. It could happen to anyone. How long did you date or live together before you decided to get married? Well, we didn't get married for about five years. So, Mm -hmm. but we did live together within about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. So the first year and a half was all of, you know, that romantic flowers, love bombing, beautiful, everything. Let me help you with your house and everything you need. I'm just at your beck and call. So that went on about a year and a half. And my soon to be husband convinced me that we should move in together. Okay, But I'm the one that owned a home and he rented a home. He'd been mm-hmm. also divorced and lost his house and everything in the divorce. So I owned my own home. So he convinced me to sell my home. And then we went in on a home together, but he had no money to put down. I'm the one that put down all of the money with my house and sale. And, uh, but he had a decent job. So that's how we were able to qualify for the mortgage that was the additional amount of money we needed to get the house. So that was about a year and a half. And from that day forward, everything just started to go downhill. There were more fights. There was uh, more manipulation, control triangulation with his daughter and, uh, you know, negativity and arrogance coming out and uh, stonewalling and silent treatments, weird behaviors that just completely changed once he had everything set the way that he wanted. Where You're now convinced that his goal was to entangle you financially. Absolutely. 150%. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then the mask came down Mm -hmm. and you began to have problems. Now we're characterizing this as a uh, 
a toxic relationship. And I know at the end of your story, it'll be clear to people why we call it that. But listen, I would guess that financial disputes, if they're not the number one marital problem, mm-hmm. they're certainly in the top five. So when did you begin to go, well, I think uh, there's something else going on here. You know, when did you go from just a young woman who's having a bad relationship to someone going, you know, there's something going on here that I'm, I'm not really paying attention to. Did that happen immediately, incrementally? Tell me about that. Well, I don't mean to correct you, but we did not fight about money at all. So oh. I willingly, lovingly put all my money down on this house because I wanted the beautiful, you know, romantic story of a family. So be myself and my soon husband to be my son from my first marriage, his daughter from his first marriage. And we would live happily ever after with a yard and a puppy and everything. So there was fighting about money. The first fighting happened mostly about his relationship with his daughter from his first marriage. He would set uh, she and I up against each other in competition for his attention. And so that was what we would fight about. In fact, that's all we fought about for the first several years was the way that he raised his daughter to mostly be afraid of me and view me as a competition for her. Mm-hmm. And uh, he also had very inappropriate behaviors with his daughter. And uh, he would lock himself in her room with her in the evening for daddy daughter alone time. We would fight about that, basically. Uh, so that's what we fought about. And we fought about that for many, 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 many years. I think over the time that we were together and fighting, he realized that one of my biggest childhood injuries is not feeling seen or heard. So that's what he started to do was started to uh, withhold supportive statements, uh, not reply to me, take a big long pause. What are you doing, honey? Nothing, you know? So he would recognize that that would create frustration in me. And then that's where he would exert his control over me is to kind of make me feel insecure. So I would walk on eggshells. What's interesting about that is, uh, again, if you've not been there and done that, I imagine you sit and listen to a story like that and go, well, does the building have to fall on you? Uh, He was manipulating you. He was setting you up uh, to behave in a way that he wanted you to and not the way you truly felt. Now, you were married for how long before this thing came apart completely? We were together for 20 years, and we were legally married for 15 years. 15 years. And I would say it was about 17 years of time together before I really realized, you know, that I was in a very hopeless and dangerous situation. Yeah. Escalating at a lightning speed. Yeah, I'm going to get into the specifics of, I mean, what you've learned as a result of that. Mm-hmm. 15 year process, you know, but before that, just to end that that story, which never really ends. Can you talk about what was left in the wake? I know there was a gigantic financial hit Mm -hmm. that you took in, but just give us the the thumbnail of the wreckage. Well, let me also just say that the behavior of a person with narcissism is intermittent. So you get little nuggets of you know, I might bring you coffee and you're like, oh, isn't that sweet? And then slam, something terrible happens. So that does feed into that cognitive dissonance in your brain where you're going, well, 
maybe it's not that bad. They just brought me coffee or they just gave me a lovely birthday present or whatever that is. So that's kind of how it can get dragged out for a period of time. And you'll see individual characteristics like, boy, that person's really depressed or arrogant or dependent or negative or whatever. But you just think about the individual characteristics as separate and not all together as a pattern of behavior. This is not who he really is. These are just ways he's behaving. Because after all, you're right, he's nice over here, but he's not nice over there. So you, you right. took, I know you took an awful financial hit. Yeah, um, so I can tell you about that. Yeah, go ahead. So he and I decided we were going to retire on an island off the coast of Panama. And we built a house over a period of eight years out of beautiful local hardwoods in the Panamanian rainforest jungle, overlooking the Caribbean, just a beautiful home that was going to be the payoff for my entire life's hard work and the dream I'd had since I was 15 years old to retire at the beach. So we each put all of our money into it, you know, whatever money we had access to from our work lives. And we invested and invested and invested. And we created this beautiful, beautiful custom home with gorgeous stained glass and just gorgeous thing that we were going to retire peacefully, hopefully. And and he constantly promised me, you know, I'm going to be different in Panama. I'm going to be happy in Panama. It's because it's so stressful here and I don't like it and it's cold and people are mean and I'm going to be so happy then. And so, of course, I want to believe that. You know, I have all this time spent in, all this money, and it's escalating and it's getting worse and scarier. And I've seen, you know, disassociative moments with him where I really thought he could hurt me. Like I thought in a moment he could absolutely hurt me in a a major way. So that all said, they called that future faking. So he was actually setting up this entire thing so that he could get away with basically pulling the rug out from underneath me and taking all of it. And that's because his father was a federal judge, so he really understood the ins and outs of legalese and setting up the Panamanian Corporation we needed to do to create this home and this property. And he was also fluent in Spanish, and I was not. So it's probably why he chose Panama is so that he could actually get a Panamanian bank account, transfer the money down there, get the corporation started. I found out seven years into the process uh, that he had set up the corporation to give himself a majority interest in the corporation in Panama without telling me. Made himself the president and the secretary, and I was the vice president and the treasurer, and the secretary had signing privileges. So he gave himself permission to sign for me to give me a minority interest in the corporation. I never knew it. In your own money, he was giving you a minority position. That's correct. Well, I knew, listen, I only mentioned the money because I knew you were going to draw out the details of how methodical a personality like this is. Um, the psychic and the emotional damage, I don't think we have to go into. He, I should ask, though, was he ever physically abusive to you? He was never physically abusive, but I will tell you, Steve, that the mental and psychological and emotional abuse that I suffered is just as bad, if not more so, because it goes on longer. If somebody hit me, I would know to leave, okay? But if somebody is constantly projecting that you're cheating or blame-shifting you or not answering questions or gaslighting you and challenging your reality, you just get confused. Your brain turns to mashed potatoes. You can't make a decision. You're afraid to do anything. 
you know, and it goes on a whole lot longer. So course of control is actually something that people in Europe are actually suing for now uh, right. and winning court cases on this because it is so psychologically damaging to a person. It's like taking your soul away. So these people, they really can't regulate their own emotions and they don't really have empathy. And so they just suck it from another person, basically. And so, yes, it just it, it just destroys who you are as a person. And I have been working very hard for the last two years to recover myself. And I'm happy to say that I feel really great now. I really do. And I, I would suspect that that's one of the reasons you decided to speak out publicly about a bad relationship, because you're right. There is the obvious damage that's been done to uh, your finances and your emotions and everything. But the listen, with luck, you build up money's money. The other thing is harder to build back up. Confidence, trust, all of that has been damaged Mm -hmm. because of this relationship. I get it. So I know that you went on a quest, not so much to figure him out, but to figure yourself out, I would guess. Like, how did I get involved in this? Who was that guy? Yes. Where was he? What level was he operating on? And you have arrived at what uh, a lot of people are now talking a lot about. Mm -hmm. Um, this notion of malignant narcissism. The number of times we've heard that beginning, you know, and, and it spreads across the culture from entertainers to uh, to presidents of the United States who exhibit this behavior. And so it's not so much a new thing. It's probably been around forever, but it's certainly one that's now been examined. And I know you've examined it. I know you have taken a, a real look at that. Uh, what did you come away with looking at what a narcissist is capable of? Well, I will say that um, not all narcissists look like potentially former presidents or malignant or grandiose narcissists or like an O.J. Simpson or someone like that or Don Draper or somebody, Mm -hmm. you know, that you look at and you go, well, there you go. That person really is outwardly arrogant and clearly cold hearted and out for themselves. You can see it. Well, my husband was not like that at all. He was like Eeyore. He was like a sort of a little sad sack. He had a sob story. He was very shy and hardly spoke at all. And, you know, seemed kind of agreeable and kind of a nice, quiet guy. Uh, so they call that covert narcissism. And, uh, and it's the same patterns of behavior, but it's a lot harder to recognize. And you can get in a whole lot deeper before you realize what's going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now I'm really going to get to the meat and potatoes of this. As I said at the introduction, that you're not here just to let your hair down and tell us what a bad time you had. You want to help if you can and let other people know. And you were first to point out, you know, this is not just a female thing, that guys can run into this personality type as well. So share with us um, some advice or signs that you might uh, tell folks in this kind of relationship to keep an eye out for. Okay. Well, first and foremost, trust your gut, Right. Your intuition is there to tell you uh, what's right for you. You know, when you're born as a little infant, you're completely blank. You have really no uh, no knowledge of anything. You've got a supercomputer in your head and it's just downloading all of your surroundings. So, you know, it's getting from your caregivers and your surroundings, how you get your needs met, etc. Uh, basically, that's when your intuition is being developed as you're starting to grow you know, when you're a young child, you can even be an infant and, you know, starting to have an understanding about if you cry, does somebody come bring you food, you know, or then how do you get your needs met? 
So that is the most important and hardest to put a finger on aspect here is trust your gut. If something feels off, it's off. Yeah. Something seems too good to be true. It is. (laughs) It is. That's not a normal way people get together. The way people get together is they, they build trust in a relationship over time. So if somebody starts bringing you flowers and telling you you're you know, the greatest thing in the whole wide world and starts to escalate the relationship to move very quickly on a fast track, either we're living together or we're intimate very, very quickly, those are signs to look for. If you find yourself making a list in your head about all the good qualities they have, okay, you're rationalizing. If you find yourself repeating, well, but they're really nice. They did this terrible thing, but they do this and this and this and this and this, you're in trouble. So Yeah, something's going on. It's interesting when you begin with the uh, trust your gut. It sounds metaphysical, but it it really isn't. You know, that's almost an evolutionary thing. That gut is the same instinct that told people millions of years ago, run. Right. There's a bear so, coming. <laughs> in trouble here, run. It's run. Sort of flight or fight syndrome. And now because we, we don't like to think of ourselves as animals, we want to rely on our reasoning. And then as you so perfectly described, the instinct is overwhelmed because you're going to think your way out of this. You're going to rationalize your way out. Of it. I mean, it's a really instructive description of what happened. So and I don't know whether you've availed yourself of them, but I know you want to maybe even start your own thing. But there are lots of groups and organizations now that are set up just to deal with people who are in this crisis. Have you availed yourself of any of them? I found a woman, many, many helpful people on YouTube, believe it or not, for free. So that's what I did with my pandemic year is I studied narcissism, codependency, and the uh, unique relationship between those two personality types. You know, a person with some level of codependency, like myself, we're other focused. We want to help people. We want to fix people. We don't want to even really have needs. We want to be focused on meeting other people's needs, you know, caregivers, etc. And people with narcissistic, high level of narcissism, either narcissistic personality disorder or very high level of narcissism, those people are self-focused. So what a perfect combination. Mm-hmm. So there are uh, there's a woman named Dr. Romani on YouTube who is a psychologist or a psychiatrist, I believe, and she is well versed, and that's her specialty is narcissism and sociopathic personality types, et cetera, disassociative personality types. And another woman who just really saved my life, her name is Lisa A. Romano, and she also experienced a similar kind of marriage. So 13 years to a covert narcissist and just couldn't figure out what was wrong. You know, just had health issues and stress, couldn't sleep, couldn't get an answer, couldn't feel connected, just couldn't really put her finger on it. And so she has a million videos on YouTube. Our organizations like CODA, which is a national organization for codependent people, and they have meetings and they have online meetings all over the country. Hugely helpful organization. That's terrific because we want to leave people with the sense that if they're going through this, they're not alone. In fact, it's a big and growing club, which is horrible to think about. Uh, But, you know, uh, on the corner uh, on our website, we will post some of these names and people will be able to avail themselves of that. Uh, Erin, you you started out a strong woman. You went through a couple of bad things here, really bad, but you still look like you're uh, hanging in there. So that's to be uh, 
That's to be applauded. Good for you. Thank you. Um, your relationship to men, I don't want to get real personal here, but have you been able to trust any men since this thing happened? Uh, um, I think my lack of trust for men, honestly, goes back a lot farther mm-hmm. than, you know, than my second husband, a lot farther. I was primed to be taken advantage of by somebody like him who, who presented himself as very safe, protective, safe, quiet, you know, mm-hmm. low key, not uh, overtly aggressive or assertive. Um, to answer your question, it's always been an issue for me going back to when I was probably a teenager in, uh, in trusting men. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing to carry forward with me, you know, trust, but verify, you know, I want to believe in people, um, but I have the tools now to recognize these kinds of behaviors in other people and not just romantic partners in some of the friendships that I've had throughout my life. Most of my friends are wonderful people that I have a wonderful equal relationship where it's very reciprocal. And a few of my friends feel a little bit like he did. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's great. I mean, in the wreckage of this whole thing, um, I think the best thing that comes out of our conversation, at least from my perspective, is that after, you know, the dust settles, if you're smart, like you are, you begin to do the real work, which is on yourself and uh, getting a perspective on how this happened to you. And then sharing that story is terrific. So thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. You are, that's a hundred percent spot on. That is, it's all really about me. And yeah, yeah. Is, you know, the other partner in this kind of a situation, you have to look at yourself and say, how did I get here? Yeah, how yeah. And more, to work? and more importantly, how do I not go there again? Aaron, thanks so much. As this thing moves on with you, uh, uh, I know you want to tell the story even more broadly, uh, maybe write a book or something, but when that happens, you come back and we'll talk about it again. Terrific. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. It was a real pleasure to chat with you today. Thanks. Thanks so much. Hey, everybody. Thanks again. Hanging on a corner. Don't forget, you know the deal. Like us, follow us, review us. We appreciate it. The Behavioral Corner. Catch you next time. Studies show that 2020 has negatively affected the mental health of millions of Americans. That is why at Retreat, we work to provide comprehensive mental health programming through our Synergy Health programs. To learn more about Synergy and the comprehensive mental and behavioral health services we offer, Call us today at 855-802-6600. That's it for now. And make us a habit, hanging out at the Behavioral Corner. And when we're not hanging, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. On the Behavioral Corner.